0: Welcome to The Collective Tap, conversations about water. I'm your host, Taylor Bennett. This season, we've explored the hidden life of water with our field hosts Taz Walters and Devin Dabney. We've had conversations about the relationship between water and energy, manufacturing and Indiana's economy, and wastewater treatment. In the final episode of the season, we speak with Dr. Rachel Scarlett, a postdoctoral fellow with the David H. Smith Conservation Research Fellowship, Paula Brooks with the Hoosier Environmental Council, and Jim McGough with the Indiana Finance Authority. We discuss the way water pollution affects disadvantaged communities, the experience of growing up amidst water pollution, and how the state is acting to address some of these chronic issues. First, let's meet Taz and Devin. Hi, I'm Taz Walters,
1: one of the Collective TAP's non-water expert hosts. Just like you, I have lots of questions about our water.
2: And I'm Devin Dabney, I'm also new to the world of water, but I'm here to help ask the questions you might want answered.
0: We begin with Dr. Rachel Scarlett, a postdoctoral fellow with the David H. Smith Conservation Research Fellowship and an honorary associate scientist with the Keller Science Action Center at the Field Museum in Chicago, Illinois. Dr. Scarlett talks about the impacts of combined sewer overflows, redlining in our development history, the need for infrastructure investment and the threat of emerging contaminants.
3: My name is Rachel Scarlett. I'm currently a postdoc with the Smith Fellows Program and I'm an ecologist and social scientist. Um, I study environmental justice issues related to flooding and water quality.
4: Oh, well, what a coincidence, because in today's episode, we're talking about environmental justice and how water issues impact different communities. Could you share with us some of the ways... Water can impact different communities, and what the most impacted communities have in common?
3: Currently, what, you're, what we're all probably seeing now are the flooding impacts um, on communities. And what's, what's highlighted in the news right now is the flooding going on in Pakistan. And when we look at communities of the U.S., that type of flooding, maybe not at that scale, that's glacier based flooding, but we're, we're also experiencing unprecedented flooding due to climate change impacts. And the communities most impacted by these flooding events are coastal communities, communities that live along rivers. And when we're thinking about urban areas like Chicago, Indianapolis, we're thinking about urban flooding. So that can occur anywhere. It doesn't just have to occur on the rivers, but urban flooding can occur due to pipe failures because pipes are overwhelmed. So water is being backed up onto streets and sidewalks. So though, these are flooding issues that a lot of us in cities are dealing with. And in terms of water quality problems, uh, the problems are vast as well. One of the biggest problems that we're dealing with now is nutrient pollution, which is what I study. The impact of nitrogen and phosphorus on our water resources. These pollutants come from mostly from fertilizer use in agricultural landscapes. And then in urban landscapes, you have fertilizer use for lawns and gardens and things like that, that can pollute our water resources.
2: You uh, you mentioned stormwater issues specifically, and I'm curious if you could elaborate a little more of what kind of issues uh, stormwater could present.
3: I guess specifically in, in areas that I'm working in in Chicago, you can have uh, even small flooding events can result in flooding of people's basement. In, in places like Chicago and Indianapolis, we have something called combined sewer systems. Our sewer pipes are combined with our stormwater pipes. So during large storms, our sewage and stormwater flows through the same pipes. And when the pipe limit is exceeded, you have overflow of raw sewage into our rivers and streams, and sometimes into people's basements when these pipes are, are overwhelmed.
4: In terms of environmental justice, when these events are happening, who are the people who are most impacted and what are the ways that we can help those individuals? Okay, I'll start with the
3: first question. Who's Who are the people who are most impacted? There was recently a study in the Indianapolis Star, and it was looking at combined sewer overflow outlets and how they were correlated with communities of color along the White River. So you can see that these instances where raw sewage is flowing into the river are impacting communities of color most in the Indianapolis area. That kind of shows the the disparities and impact of these flooding events. And when we're thinking about flooding in general, there have been studies across the nation showing that low-income communities of color are living in low-lying areas throughout the nation. A lot of the times, coastal communities are are more affluent, but this study is showing that, that there are a lot of low-income communities of color that are living in coastal communities that are impacted by large storms coming in, hurricanes. And you can think about the Gulf Coast in terms of those impacts. We just had the, I think, 17th anniversary of Hurricane Katrina. So we see those the hurricane impacts on these predominantly Black Gulf Coast communities.
4: What can be done to help rectify that situation? The biggest thing
3: we need right now is investment, like money invested into these communities so that the infrastructural updates that they need are being done. Uh, we're also facing um, a deterioration of our stormwater and sewage infrastructure. So there's... huge problem with our infrastructure aging our infrastructure was put in more than 50 years ago so it's deteriorating its aging which can exasperate the flooding issues we need to invest money one to fix our infrastructure to make sure that it's operating at uh, its highest capacity so that these communities don't have to deal with flooding issues from infrastructural problems and then two, I think we need to place money into these communities to build their capacity to respond to flooding and storm events. A lot of the time uh, you hear stories of people not being able to make it to work because either uh, a bus route has been rerouted due to flooding of a street, so they can't actually catch the bus where they used to catch it. Those with disabilities may not be able to actually uh, navigate sidewalks and everything that are flooded. So there are also all of these like labor issues that people face if we're going to continue to face these flooding issues, which we are due to climate change. We need to be able to secure people's jobs, make sure they're not losing jobs due to flooding events and make sure they have paid leave when they can't get to work due to flooding or they become sick because they live near a sewage outfall. We need to provide some money for for them to be able to take off work.
2: I'm curious about the fact that communities of color are often located in floodplains can that be correlated to redlining? Is that part of how redlining has affected where these communities are located? I guess I'm curious just because, you know, you you even said yourself that it's not just poorer communities on the coast. There's also richer communities or more affluent communities. So I'm just wondering what the correlation between poorer communities in a coastal floodplain and redlining is, if there is one.
3: Yeah, I, um, I'm i still searching for that that answer. And I think... Um, there's still ongoing research on the correlation between uh, redlining and communities being located in blood plains. But what we do know is that oftentimes redlining was done in a way that Black communities were placed on areas of subpar land. So they were usually placed in uh, neighborhoods that were already zoned, for industry that can lead to like concentration of of industrial pollution in these neighborhoods.
2: Yeah, I feel like it's just like a complicated answer or question. It
3: is complicated. And it's just I think that I think that there does need to be a study on this. Like when when redlining maps were being drawn, were they actually thinking about where the floodplains are um, right. and specifically
2: trying to place wealthier communities outside of these uh, floodplains? Rachel, would you mind defining redlining, please?
3: Yes. So, redlining was a was a government policy, and it was enforced and sanctioned by the Federal Housing Authority and the Home Loan Homeowners Loan Corporation, which is H O L C. So, they created a grading system throughout the nineteen thirties, forties, and fifties. Uh, they created a grading system for urban neighborhoods where uh, an A grade would be given to predominantly white and affluent neighborhoods. And more often than not, uh, black communities would be graded D. Um, And that's whether or not their middle income, low income, mostly all black communities in urban areas got the D grade. Um, And they use this grading system to um, decide who was going to Receive a federal housing loan. So, for these A-graded neighborhoods, the feds basically backed up home ownership, and these degraded neighborhoods were basically denied home ownership loans and forced into renting situations. So, that basically carved up the city. Into neighborhoods that received investment from the government and built their tax base. And then you have Black neighborhoods that were extremely disinvested um, over the course of 70 to 80 years.
4: Do you have any success stories that we can look at or interesting work that's being done in that area?
3: Are There's something that comes to mind, but it's not like a local example, but I do think that the infrastructure bill. Uh, that passed last year and uh, the Inflation Reduction Act. I think these two bills that have just been passed are at least a step towards what we need in terms of um, federal investment into rebuilding our infrastructure. And a lot of the money is supposed to be allocated towards communities that are most disadvantaged by flooding and climate change impacts. So, Hopefully, that money actually does get to these communities, but that is something to look forward to.
2: Do you feel hopeful that that bill will actually do something meaningful for these communities?
3: I think it will scratch the surface. The only reason I I think it's a great bill, but a lot of the times with these large scale investments, even though Biden is saying, Most of the money is supposed to go towards communities of color. They didn't put in place any mechanisms within the bill to actually say these communities are the ones who need to have the money. So they're leaving it up to states a lot, especially with the infrastructure bill, which is a problem. And now you're starting to see a lot of stories come out that are saying, you know, activists are angry because they haven't seen any of the projects. It's been almost a year now. Um, and they they
2: want to know where the investment has gone. Yeah, I uh, we actually spoke with someone uh, yesterday from the Indiana Finance Authority that was talking about that bill, and he even told us that every state uh, has their own definition of disadvantaged communities that the EPA allows them to assign, and that's why I was curious if you were hope like if you felt hopeful because part of me was like, yeah, this is great. Like oh, there are some things in place, but some of it. Made my heart sink a little bit because in my mind the states that are less likely to give that money Are the ones that actually need to give the money the most, you know yes. so
3: <laughs> It's such a huge problem and and you, you I saw it in a news story, uh in louisiana That the the state government and this was on abortion like the state government was against uh, the city of new orleans not enacting their abortion ban So the state decided not to funnel money into the city to help them update their infrastructure, their water infrastructure. And it's just like that. That's the issue. You have these states with with large black communities that are being impacted by climate with Republican governments that are playing politics with the money. And that, yeah, that's a huge problem. And I I think you know, with the infrastructure bill and the Inflation Act, uh, they can't even use race to determine which neighborhoods the money can go to. So they're building all of these metrics to decide which neighborhoods are disadvantaged. I think it's kind of, it's a little haphazard.
4: A lot of times when you're basing disadvantaged communities on income, that can give wiggle room to put that money into poor white people instead of people of color it's very complicated and yes and you know
3: i wholeheartedly believe that all of those communities we can't leave any community behind but let's not just funnel all of the money into wealthy or white or wealthy and white communities
4: this season is called the hidden life of water which is why we're talking about issues that are often hidden from view and and the way that societies often turn their heads away from uncomfortable truths. So, we've looked at things like energy production, industrial and wastewater pollution, manufacturing processes, things like that. Do you have anything that you can share about these types of hidden issues and how they can contribute to environmental issues that are impacting these communities?
3: It's not quite a part of my research, but they're, they're, um are a lot of emerging studies looking at micropollutants from sewage treatment facilities. So these micropollutants are not being um, removed in the water treatment process. These include like pharmaceuticals, microplastics, pesticides. Lots of these things are not being removed in the water treatment process and just being dumped into our rivers and streams. And I think there's emerging research looking at what problems this is uh, causing in aquatic communities. One, so how are these toxins accumulating in the fish that we eat and how are they circulating back into our drinking water system is a problem. And a lot of these micropollutants are dumped into rivers and streams during storm events and from combined sewer overflows. So those communities that live near these sewage outlets Are the communities, again, most impacted by this emerging
2: uh, water pollutant? As we lay all of these different factors out, I think it's really easy to see how the bad effects can just be multiplied. You know, if you're living in a low floodplain area that has stormwater issues, and we're also flushing pharmaceuticals and plastics down the drain, all of that is just like combining in this one or not one, but this one type of community.
3: Yeah, all of these problems are just compounding. So I was just thinking the other day, like in on the south side of Chicago, uh, near like the Indiana border, they have huge air pollution issues because there's so much industry in that area, but they also have flooding problems. So basement flooding issues. So they have toxins from industry already just in the air. And then when it floods, you get these toxins from the water becoming aerosols and adding to the air pollution in your home. So it's just like you're surrounded. And Hazel Johnson, uh, the mother of the environmental justice movement, she's from one of these communities and she called the community outfield gardens, the toxic donut. And I think that kind of describes like what we're talking about. You're just surrounded. You're The community's in the middle and you're surrounded by All of these issues.
2: Is there anything we didn't bring up in relation to environmental justice or stormwater issues or disadvantaged communities that you want to share?
3: I work a lot on how communities participate in the stormwater management process. That's another issue that we're facing, is that a lot of stormwater is usually managed by engineers and very technical um, professions. So when communities want to be involved, There's a huge barrier, a huge technical barrier to knowing the language to speak, knowing the problems that that they're facing and where they're coming from. They just know, hey, this is affecting me. But there's a lot of engineering and technical mess that has to be dug through to actually join the conversation. So there's a there's a need for our municipalities and our governance to engage communities throughout this entire process of updating our infrastructure of building plans to address climate change it has to be something that's co-created co-produced with the communities that are most impacted and i think the process is just as important the process of like where these investments go and how things how our infrastructure should be updated that process is just as important as the
4: outcome that's interesting to hear you say that we had a guest a while ago now we were at a wastewater facility or a a treatment facility, and he was talking about the wastewater and like drinking water industry and how most of the people in that industry are white males and like those are the people doing in the engineering on these systems, that is not representative of the communities that these systems are affecting
3: exactly, and we have to just at this point you know we have to say you don't need the technical expertise to come up with a solution. The people in the the communities most affected, they have experience, and that experience can guide a lot of the solutions that we come up with.
0: Next, Paula Brooks is the Environmental Justice Program Manager with the Hoosier Environmental Council. Paula talks about the challenges growing up in a community affected by chronic pollution and the importance of looking forward.
5: My name is Paula Brooks. And I'm the Environmental Justice Project Manager at Hoosier Environmental Council, which is an Indiana-based environmental advocacy organization.
1: And what do you do in your work as the Environmental Justice Program Manager at the Hoosier Environmental Council?
5: Our highest priority is to build the capacity of residents to advocate for themselves on issues impacting their neighborhoods and their communities. So I work very closely with residents, um, training, bringing resources, amplifying their voices. I also um, act as a bridge between the residents or the community and decision makers, be that corporate people, people um, in government positions, our elected officials, some of the nonprofits. I'm I'm a bridge um, between the two groups. And then thirdly, I work with a lot of students to really um, just introduce them to not only um, environmentalism, but also environmental justice in that my goal is to promote equitable um, development and social justice.
1: In our episode today, we're really looking at environmental justice and environmental problems relative to water and how it impacts different communities. As far as you know, is there any intersection between the location of redlined neighborhoods and water quality issues like access or vulnerability to stormwater issues?
5: Actually, there is. And and I don't generally use the term redlined communities. For me, it's based on race. Um, so historically, black and brown neighborhoods received disproportionate um, public investment. And that also includes um, sewers, the public infrastructure, as well as the um, water that is located in those neighborhoods. Historically, industry and residential areas were close in terms of the distance, but When you're living near industry, you're definitely going to have health impacts. You're going to have quality of life impacts. So the wealthier and whiter population was able to move away and poorer and blacker and browner people were stuck. Um, So that's for me, that's the relationship.
2: What sorts of impacts firsthand are you seeing? to these people that are stuck in these communities that have like not as much access to high quality water or just more problems affecting their water supply?
5: Oh, well, it's been an incremental change. My proudest moment is actually watching residents advocate for themselves. Um, You know, sometimes as stakeholders will go into communities and we see a need and, you know, we're like, oh, we have the perfect solution for this. But that may not be what the residents want. That may not be their priority. And once that project or that program is implemented, then you you start looking, um, you do the metrics and you start wondering, well, where did we fail? The failure was at the beginning because it was a project that did not have community
2: buy-in from the beginning you did just say that there's been some incremental positive changes. Would you say over time that that things are improving, that we're learning how to improve these resources and make these communities have a better quality of life? Most
5: definitely, yes. And, and I actually think that it's just a generational awareness. You know, I'm either a very young baby boomer or a very old Gen Xer, however you want to look at it. It always strikes me when I work with younger people and some of the problems, or issues that they're focused on, they don't really know what came before. And and the fights that the baby boomers, because I wasn't in most of those major fights because I was just too young. Right. But that culture changed. So, for instance, when I was in college, just the business uniform. You know, there was a uniform, <laughs> and especially for women. You know, we were really told to kind of down, you know, kind of downplay your beauty, um, your sexuality, you know, your your personal life, um, so you could fit into into this male dominated environment. Um, you don't hear that so much anymore. It's changed. Now you know it's work from home. You could be making a million dollars, and you're not wearing a suit every day. You know you, you're wearing your your jeans and and your you know your hat and even a do rag, right? Which twenty or thirty years ago, that person would not even have an opportunity because they didn't come with the right uniform. So I I think that it's important to respect those that came before you because they're doing the same thing that you're doing at 25 when they were 25, pushing the envelope.
1: Speaking about those that came before, could you talk a little bit about what it would have been like to live in a community suffering from chronic water pollution issues?
5: Oh, I have a lot of personal uh, (laughs) experience with that. So I grew up, at that time, we were the near west side, which now is known as ransom place, Um, Right off Indiana Avenue is um, the oldest community um, associated with Black people in the city of Indianapolis dating back to um, 1830. So we have three waterways. We have the canal, we have Fall Creek, and we have White River. I used to have to cross the canal um, to go to grade school. I can just remember how dirty it was. And the fact that my family was like, stay off the canal, right? I mean, you know, it was just dirty, stinky. It wasn't well maintained. It was just something that we just knew, right? With Fall Creek, it was kind of the same thing. But with Fall Creek, I I have a funny story. Um, We used to play, There's a park, Fall Creek Park. It's renamed something. I don't even remember the name. The person's name but it it was always fall creek park right off of 16th street and fall creek and there's a huge levee there so our parents always tell us you know stay away from the creek stay away from the creek but we would go we would have school field trips that take us down to fall creek to show us the the beavers would make dams and also to pick leaves for our little science projects and those types of things. I understand now the fear that our parents had that we would drown, right? It was not a place to embrace at all. Then with White River, White River to this day, I would never put my toe in it. It was yellow, bubbling, green, bubbling all the time. It was smelly, you know, it was just not anything that was germane to my life. I um, was fortunate enough to go to school on the East Coast. And when I was able to go to parks that had creeks and are the riverbanks, and I didn't make that connection that I lived near water until I left home. And I'm still living near water. But I just I don't know. It was like Some kind of cognizant dissonance, (laughs) (laughs) which is interesting now, and especially the kind of work that I do. I love being near the water. But for here, for me now, as I said, I would never put my toe in White River. Same thing for Fall Creek. When I look at the canal, it's like a Disney world to me, you know, because it's not really real. It's a concrete tube filled with water. Right. So I don't really know. I can't really say that I embrace that. I, I would prefer that it was still more natural.
1: Well, and I think that also you talked about how, you know, neighborhood shift over time. And I think that whole canal area has definitely changed demographically and kind of shows how that also changes the waterway when you have the people who are living around it changing.
5: Well, that was the whole purpose of um, upgrading the canal at that time was to make the area more attractive or appealing to IEPY students and staff. And also, we always would say to just get the Black people out of downtown. And so that project displaced a lot of people. Historic homes were demolished. The buildings were built in a manner to keep people out gated communities. Some of our streets were truncated. It was not necessarily a a benefit for the neighborhood. It was definitely built for others. And even now, when you go to the canal and you see who are kind of enjoying themselves on the canal, and I'm I'm not trying to say that um, people don't live in the neighborhood, but You look at the people that are there and that demographic is definitely younger, wider, and wealthier.
2: So you've talked some about how there are some positive changes that are happening and that some momentum is being gained in terms of reversing the impacts that have been handed down to black and brown folks. I wonder, um, from your perspective, where there are some gaps, like where we could improve even more and like what... uh, What's not happening to reverse these effects that should be happening?
5: I actually think that we need to look forward and not look backwards. And that's a little secret that I'm (laughs) I'm putting out there because it's really not popular to say that history. And I'm not trying to say that history is not important, but you cannot recreate a moment in time, time and culture and human development. It's a progression and you really cannot go back. So I would prefer rather than emphasis placed on trying to take back what was lost, that emphasis is placed on investing in the future. So, for instance, in in my neighborhood, again, the fastest growing demographic are Asian people. And, and they're coming to the neighborhood with no knowledge at all of the past. They're here because it's convenient for them. I don't want to discount their presence. I want to encourage diversity that's coming in. But I don't want to lose fact that there was people here before. The the history and the culture that was here before. And you can really... Um, have street names that um, honor people. You can have buildings. It doesn't have to be that same scene again.
1: Can you give us any examples of community-led efforts to try to deal with water injustice?
5: The park over in Hallville, there's a group of young people who have really embraced a vision that was put forth by a former city planner who, oh, thank you, Belmont Beach. Thank you. Um, that was put forward um, because he was so appalled at the history of the city. He's not from here. And so he was able to bring his skills and his resources to develop this park. Residents were happy. They've contributed They've organized and they've kind of taken it back. And and Belmont Beach was actually a place that um, Black people in Indianapolis were able to go and enjoy the water way in, in a safe manner. So I think that that's a good example of that.
1: When changes are made, how can we ensure that everybody has equitable access to those benefits?
5: That's a hard question. Human nature, be it as it is. People want to live around and they feel safe around people who hold similar values, who look the same way, especially when they have children. Um, You know, you want to protect your children from any dangers that you perceive are out there. And I think until we get to a point in this country where we're not looking at people and putting them in categories based on their race are there class? I'm not very hopeful. Just kind of give you an example. Here in downtown Indianapolis, um, the previous mayor had a policy that was well-funded to attract what I call the preferred demographic, whiter, younger, and wealthier. But um, millions of dollars were spent on that initiative, and it was successful. But A lot of these people who come in, once they have children, they are going back to the suburbs because the city is too chaotic for them. They definitely don't want to put their kids in public schools because the public schools have to take everyone. So, you know, I'm hopeful when I look at younger people that that will change over time. Um, Younger people are are, um, just because of these, past social experiments, the busing, um, the affirmative action are more comfortable in a diverse environment. So I'm just hopeful, but I I'm not very optimistic that anything's going to change tomorrow. I mean, that seems fair.
2: <laughs> <laughs> I don't think so either,
5: <laughs> but, but I also can say, I draw hope from this present, um, administration that we have locally, they're not perfect. They've made great strides to try to right some of the wrongs of the past. Um, Not only the mayoral administration, but also the council, because they hold the lock and key to the money, right? So they can set priorities um, just on a local level. I've seen a lot of change. So that, that makes me hopeful.
2: How would you define environmental justice?
5: Environmental justice, I believe, is the human right to live in a clean, safe, and healthy environment, be it um, rural, suburban, or urban.
1: Can you give us an idea of the current state of environmental justice for those three
5: communities? The current state of environmental justice is actually on the upswing. There's Emphasis on quality of life um, for all. And environmental justice, the framework encompasses life. It encompasses healthy housing, um, access to clean water, clean air, education, public investment and infrastructure like sidewalks, sewer lines, some of those things that we don't really think are sexy, but um, they're really germane to having a high quality of life. So I'm ecstatic on where we are today in the environmental justice movement. And also the fact that our president Biden has made that a pillar of his policies. Any project that receives federal money, at least 40% of the benefits have to go to black and brown communities. That's huge. It's the opportunity um, to level the playing field.
0: Finally, Taz and Devin speak with Jim McGough, the Director of Environmental Programs with the Indiana Finance Authority. The IFA oversees a new source of federal funding that will direct investment to disadvantaged communities.
6: Jim McGough and I manage the environmental programs for the Indiana Finance Authority. What
2: is the Indiana Finance Authority?
6: So the primary purpose of the Indiana Finance Authority is to finance state facilities for government use. So your office buildings, your garages, um, correctional facilities, et cetera. The environmental programs include uh, water-based and brownfield-based programs. Uh, The water-based drinking water, wastewater, stormwater, lead service line replacement Um, are EPA-funded, state-managed. So there is a federal appropriation every year for wastewater and drinking water. Each state receives a portion of that federal allotment, if you will. And then it's up to that state to determine its water and wastewater needs and how to prioritize those needs and to put those funds to use. In addition to that, a state can choose to be a direct loan program or a leveraged loan program. So, a direct loan program would be a state that perhaps receives $50 million a year from EPA for wastewater. They choose to loan that $50 million out to cities and towns. Uh, it recycles back in the form of a loan repayment and they reloan it out. A leveraged loan program would be one that uses the municipal debt market to increase or leveraged the EPA funds, and Indiana chose to do that in the formation, and that's why the program is with the Indiana Finance Authority, because of the leveraging. So current leveraging factor for Indiana is for every dollar EPA provides to us, we are able to loan $4 to cities and towns uh, through low-interest loans. So that's the long-winded answer to uh, why an environmental program sits underneath uh, the the Indian Finance Authority's umbrella?
2: Thank you for that explanation. That that makes total sense. Just as a a couple of examples, what kind of projects does that money fund? You know, in cities and towns, and
6: on the wastewater side, it would be traditional wastewater treatment plants and um, collection systems and everything associated with with that. On the drinking water side, the converse, so it would be distribution systems and drinking water treatment plants. Uh, also a very important um, health uh, uh, item that has is, is come to light recently is lead service line and the elimination of lead service line. So Indiana started to prioritize that. Um, it's been four years now that we have offered uh, down to a 0% interest loan to address lead service line. In the um, recent federal legislation, they are also allotting us an additional amount of money to target lead service line replacement. Under the wastewater program, we can also do stormwater projects as long as there's an environmental um, component to the stormwater elimination or limitation, meaning that we can't do just flood control type projects. There has to be an environmental uh, component to the stormwater project, and that would be somehow treating the stormwater before it hits a receiving stream. So you see retention basins, or there's certain places where there's plantings and things like that for the uh, runoff from roads that would take care of or provide some treatment before uh, the runoff hits a receiving stream.
1: We've heard that there is a new Federal source of money, um, specifically a funding program for infrastructure. Can you explain what this program is, what the purpose of the funding is, and how it's tied to environmental programs that serve disadvantaged communities?
6: So it's the um, bipartisan infrastructure law. Um, and uh, and so that was, I think, adopted in Congress last fall. EPA uh, received a historical large amount of funding to distribute to states. So historically, our state would receive an average $35 million for wastewater, 15 to $16 million for drinking water. That's what we've received uh, 30 years, over the past 30 years for, for wastewater anyway, um, and 20 years for drinking water. So the, the new bill would provide us an additional $127 million for the next five years, in each of the next five years. So on top of what we're already receiving, we will receive $127 million of additional funding and it will go into five general buckets. We'll receive additional funding for our core programs, wastewater, drinking water. We will also receive an additional $43 million in each of the next five years to address uh, lead service line replacement. And we will receive roughly $11.5 million for drinking water emerging contaminants, PFAS, PFOA, and other unregulated contaminants. We will receive an additional $2.2 million for emerging contaminant in the wastewater um, area with respect to the, um, the additions to our core programs. So we will receive... On the drinking water side, an additional $27 million. Not only do we get our 15 or 16 million base program, we'll get 27 million of additional funding, half of which or close to 13 and a half million dollars needs to target disadvantaged communities. On our wastewater side, um, again, the 30 or 40 million dollars that we traditionally get, we'll get another 43 million. Again, half of that or 21 million dollars would have to target um, disadvantaged communities. On the lead service line, the 43 million, half disadvantaged communities. On the emerging contaminants, the entire amount, so the entire 11 million for drinking water, a little over 2 million for clean water or wastewater, needs to go to disadvantaged communities. Every state has their own definition of disadvantaged communities. Uh, As you can appreciate, each state has a different um, makeup of disadvantaged. Here in Indiana, We, in my mind, have a mixture of both. We have urban disadvantaged and we have um, rural disadvantaged. So um, it's not unusual for us to have requests from a rural community to convert failing septic tanks, connect them to a a close uh, treatment facility, which without our assistance could produce uh, monthly user rates in the the 150 plus dollar range per month per resident. And if you couple that with a median household income of $30,000 or less, that's quite a burden on those homes. So this funding uh, will be um, certainly a benefit so that we could provide grant funding to bring those user rates down um, into the, you know, our target is between $65 and $85 per month. And so that's what those funds would be used for in the rural setting. In the urban setting, um, it would be ideal if we could Um, go into a a city, um, say Indianapolis. Center Township Indianapolis, median household income uh, could range in the $25,000 per household range. Now, if you take in all of the city of Indianapolis um, uh, collection system, you obviously reach more affluent areas. So the average median household income wouldn't qualify uh, as low. And unfortunately, we cannot target this funding to to reduce an individual's household utility bill. The best we can do and what we're trying to do, and and we ran a pilot project last spring, and we think we are gonna be able to accomplish this, is we have let it be known to utilities, urban utilities that might not have low user rates, utility-wide, that if they prioritize their low-income areas in their urban environments, Um, we will provide grant funding as long as that project directly impacts the low-income urban area. So uh, Indianapolis, again, is an example. Uh, If they are doing um, uh, new utility lines, uh, we ask them to prioritize the low-income areas. And um, in that instance, uh, they will present that to us, and we will provide grant funding uh, that is in a, an approximate percentage to what that low-income area is. So we still think, um, although somewhat hamstrung, that we cannot direct fund to a low-income urban area, that we are at least getting their projects prioritized.
1: That's an interesting problem <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> that water can touch so many in an urban setting can touch so many different income levels that then it becomes difficult to get those funds to the people who really need it.
6: Yes. Yep. No, it was a challenge and we're doing the best we can with the tools we have, you know, and, and hopefully I know it, it, it doesn't exist in the wastewater drinking water range. It does exist in the power where you can provide, um, you know, low income assistance to, uh, those households and, and hopefully that day will come for, uh, water and wastewater as well.
1: Is most of the definition of disadvantaged communities based upon income level?
6: The um, So each state under the EPA rules and guidelines can define their own disadvantaged community. And so ours is a, is a multi-part definition, uh, income being one of
2: those. Are there going to be any new projects that are going to be established with this? Or are there plans to do n- new things? Or is it just basically going to supplement what's already being done?
6: It's a mixture of both. The, the added funding to our traditional programs, wastewater drink drinking water, um, will enable us to touch more projects because it'll be additional funding. The new funding that, um, again, Indiana is a little ahead of other states in that we started to prioritize lead service line replacement several years ago. So we have started to receive or build up a pipeline of lead service line replacement But to have um, $43 million, half of it being uh, required to to be provided in grant, will certainly provide us with a a tool that will be very important, especially when these communities are having to prioritize the lead service line replacement in disadvantaged areas in order to take advantage of the grant funding. And we've already seen that um, the city of Fort Fort Wayne has presented to us an $11 million lead service line replacement capital improvement plan that targets all low-income areas in the city of Fort Wayne first. The other two, emerging contaminants, we have never had uh, funding sources for those. So um, that is is um, a new program that we are uh, now standing up and, and starting to educate not only ourselves but utilities to look for how emerging contaminants could be affecting uh, their utilities because we do have... grant funding available for them.
1: Do you have the full definition of like how Indiana defines a disadvantaged community or is there a place people can go to find that?
6: Yes, on our website, uh, ifa.in.gov website, and if you scroll down to the SRF, uh, State Revolving Fund Loan Programs, all of that information is, is included.
0: Trying to understand the value of water means understanding how vital it is to our daily lives. Thank you for joining us on this season of The Collective Tap as we attempted to uncover the hidden life of water. Join us on our fourth and final season where we go on the water. We will host discussions about wildlife, recreation, the history of community at the shoreline, and the relationship that Native communities nurtured with these waterways. Thank you for joining us in this conversation about water. The Collective TAP is a project of the White River Alliance, a 501c3 organization located in Indianapolis, Indiana. We are an alliance of diverse interests and organizations that work together to steward the river and its watershed. It is made possible with generous funding from the Nina Mason Pulliam Charitable Trust. If you want to learn more, visit us at thecollectivetap.com or at thewhiteriveralliance.org. Produced in partnership with Absorb.